Due to some technical difficulties, the audio for this show is a little wonky, so apologies for that. Also, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Sharon Shu, and today I'm talking to Hilary Bizenex. Yay! Huzzah! <laughs> Hillary, this is a little bit different! I know, it is a little bit different. I figured that uh, I didn't do a very good job of planning, and so I had already booked a March guest and said this is going to be coming out in March. So I was like, wait a minute, March is the start of season two. I should, like, for April, I should do me on the show as, like, the other side of it, because I haven't done that yet. And, you know, I've been, like, talking about writing for a year, and people might be like, yeah, but does he know? Like, has he he done this? Is he a real writer? (laughs) Turns out, yes. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to be talking with you um, and kind of turning the mic around on you. Yeah, it's uh, it's super awesome to once again be doing this live in my dining room. Your, uh, your very high-tech studio. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely high-tech. We have two computers here. Yes, we do. Yeah, it's very fancy. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get into what the experience of doing this podcast has been like for you a little bit more in a bit, um, but... Are you ready to read to me? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so tell me the title of the story you're reading, and is there anything we should know? So this story is called Green Line, and I think basically it's just a very Philadelphia story um, that I wrote mm, a decade ago, probably, around about a decade ago, maybe nine years ago. doesn't really matter. Nice. About that time frame... Uh, And then I have lots to say about it afterwards. Yeah. Well, as a proud Philadelphian by marriage, (laughs) I'm very excited to, to hear this. So this is Greenline. All right. I swear, first thing tomorrow, I'm going to march right up to my super, or his super, or his super, all the way up to corporate if I have to. I'm going to march right up and request a transfer. Something above ground. I don't care. I can weld. I can drive the trucks. I know wrenches and hammers and wires. Just don't put me down in that tunnel. It was supposed to be a joke. A snipe hunt for the new guy. Chem light batteries, a tin of elbow grease. Ha ha, look at the fresh meat. Never mind that I became a union man right out of high school. Knew my way around a workshop. Electrical, mechanical, the works. I was new to them. A daylighter in a world of moles. First day, Charlie, my super, he says to me, Keep an eye out for the green lady. If you meet her, be nice and respectful. And you'll be okay. And I nod and say that I'll remember that. And all the time, the other guys are standing around a little way away and trying to look busy. And really, they're all listening in and snickering because Charlie, he's a bit old and funny. And he says that his grandpa was one of the ones who dug the first subway tunnels here back when it was just the Market Street subway. And never mind Frankfurt or the ferry line like it was called back then. Anyway, he says to me to be careful of this green lady, and that's something that his dad told him because his dad helped finish digging the rest of these tunnels after the war, and that was told to him by his dad before, 
And after that, he tells me to get on to work and shows me the ropes and where to stand when there's a trolley coming and how to stay safe near the third rail for the subway trains because he says that one time a guy wasn't safe and touched the live rail and his eyeballs exploded from the shock of it all. <laughs> Later, of course, the other guys tried to screw with me because, you know, that's what you do. You were the new guy once, too, and so now it's your turn to be an ass. But you're not too bad about it, really, because even the new guy is watching your back in these tunnels, where the echoes are all weird, even after you've been down there for ages. And sometimes you can't tell which way a trolley or a train is coming from because of all the work lights and all that. They really weren't bad, but they eased up on me once they saw that I wasn't some rookie who doesn't know his ass from an arc welder. It's a weird world down there in the tunnels. We don't work when normal people do, not usually. We're the ones up at all hours, sometimes making them shut down the tunnel at times when the drivers and the trolleys and the trains are the only ones around, and they still have to drive back and forth and back and forth until their shifts are over, and they can go home and watch the sunrise so that it makes even Camden look pretty, though they're too dead tired to care. We're like those gnomes that cobble all night so that the shoemaker can keep in business and his daughter can marry a nice man with a dowry. Only I don't have a daughter, and if I did, she wouldn't need a dowry, because she would just find a nice fellow who would treat her right and never beat up on her or anything, and not care that her daddy was a tunnel worker who hardly ever saw the light of day some weeks. I got pretty used to it, eating my lunch sometimes at midnight instead of noon, or sometimes having all those bright construction lights shining in through the windows of passing trolleys full of morning or evening commuters. Sometimes, if it was an emergency, they'd even call us up during the day, waking me up at one or two in the afternoon to say that the signals are down or something's happened to one of the rails, and can our crew come out and they'll pay us overtime and treat us good because, after all, we're reunion. Things would be hell without us. They'd still run the trains and trolleys and such, but there'd be delays and things all over the place, and soon everyone would have to take to the streets and all their cars and bikes and taxis and make it hell for everyone else who already complained about the traffic and the stupid bikers who don't follow the rules of the road. Well, I thought that Charlie and the rest of the guys were full of it, and I forgot all about the green lady soon enough. I mean, as far as I knew, she was just somebody's idea of a clever play on words. Green line, green lady, stands to reason, right? So I just left it, forgot about it, like I said. One night, we were working downtown, past that little bit of track there at Juniper where the main track loops back around to head back west, but then there's that little spur that always makes people wonder. It's not that exciting. Just more track. Doesn't go anywhere. Anyway, we were working there for some reason, maybe testing some system or something. Charlie was calling the shots, and I was doing my job like always. This was maybe a year or so after I became a mole like them. We had a new guy, and it was my turn to get to ask him to get me stupid things that didn't exist and all that. <laughs> so I'd forgotten something, I think. Or maybe I had to go fetch something. But it wasn't back on the platform. It was in one of our hidey holes, one of those black doorways that maybe you see sometimes when you're riding to Center City, and you're staring out the window at nothing and everything and the reflection of the guy in the seat next to you or the lady standing in the aisle whose clothing has your imagination working overtime. Those holes... They're just supply closets, or sometimes they're emergency exits, but there's also a supply closet. Or it's the can. Point is, I had to go get something, so I walked down the tunnel, and it's kind of dark because it's a, a little way away from where we're working, so I pull out my flashlight. But I guess something's wrong with it because it keeps flickering, and then it just goes out. But I knew where I was going, and there was some light behind me so I could make it out okay. Us moles, we've got good vision, right? Because sometimes your batteries die or there's no power in the tunnel and you just have to make do. I knew where the door was, 
Or thought so. So when I come along and there's the darker rectangle in the general darkness, I just turn there and go in and feel around for the doorknob or the light switch. But it's not right there. And so I go a little bit farther and then a little bit farther still. And then I'm blinking because there's all this light. But it's not like electric light. It's daylight. It takes me a little while, being dazzled. But when I can see well, I'm in this forest on a little path. And there are green trees all around and sunshine overhead, which is maybe weirder than being in a forest, because I know it was nighttime when I went to fetch that stuff. And maybe it's not a real forest, but it is real sunlight, because it hurts to look at. I look around and I think, this is a real forest. And I think, what's a real forest doing here? Because I know I was in a trolley tunnel underneath Center City, and Fairmount Park is a ways away, and somebody's having their fun, but they'd better stop before I start swinging, let me tell you. So I turn around to see who the Joker is, only instead of seeing the way back into the tunnel behind me, I just see more trees. And I start wondering if maybe I tripped on something and knocked myself out, or just plain fell asleep and this is all a dream. But I know it isn't, because if I were walking around a forest in a dream, I wouldn't be wearing my dirty old coveralls with the septa patch and the reflective safety vest. I'd be wearing some tunic or something, at least some sweatpants and some sneakers and that. I was going back the way I came, just to see if it was an illusion or something, and I'd be back in the tunnel, but it's a real forest, like I was dropped there. So I go back to where I was when I arrived to think about things, and I think, while I'm here, I should mark the tree that's right by the path with a blaze so I can find the place again, in case I have to walk off. Well, I pull out my pocket knife and start cutting a blaze when I hear a voice behind me. I just about cut myself the way you surprised me. I turn around, and he says to me again, What are you doing cutting on my tree? And I look at him, and I think, Who's this old bum to claim he owns this tree? It looks like every other tree, except now for the blaze I was cutting when he came up. But I think, well, he does have the tunic and all, whereas I'm still in my dirty blue coveralls, and maybe he does own this tree. Which one of us looks like he belongs here, after all? Maybe he owns the whole forest, for all I know. So I tell him I'm very sorry, but I'm lost, and I just wanted to be able to find my way again and have a home base of sorts. Well, he considers me for a while when I says that, and then he says, Seeing as how you're lost, I suppose I can let it pass. And then he asks me if I have anything to eat, because he's very hungry, and I think, and I remember, yeah, I have a chocolate bar in my pocket, and it's probably rather melty because it's been in there for a while, but it's still chocolate, so I pull that out and give it to him. Well, that puzzles him for a moment, but then he figures out the wrapper and eats the whole bar. Got everywhere, but he didn't seem to mind. How did you come to be lost? He asks me when he's done eating. And I tell him that I was working and went to fetch something, and all of a sudden I was here. And he says, if you're looking for more work, there's a cottage all of green down this little pathway. Knock on the door and the green lady will come. Tell her you're looking for work, and mind you, do what she says. And maybe he says some other stuff after that, but I'm not listening anymore. Because now I'm thinking about what Charlie told me, and I'm thinking, well, damn, maybe he wasn't full of it after all. And then I thank the man and head off down the path, like he said, and sure enough, there's a little green house that looks just like a fairy tale, with its peaked roof and all sorts of gingerbread scroll work, and I think, Charlie never said anything about this. But then I think, maybe he never saw this, and he just heard stories. I go up and knock on the door, like the old man said to, because I'm still on the clock, And I'd give me an earful if I saw me slacking off just because I got a bit lost. 
After a moment, the door opens, and there's the green lady. And I'm sure Charlie never really told me about her, because if he did, well, none of the boys would have ever stopped talking about her. The way she looked. She was green, yeah. Like the Wicked Witch of the West. But she wasn't like an ugly witch you'd think of just from me saying that. She was like the girl you wished lived next door and didn't know about curtains or turning off all her lights at night. And you'd always go to bed early and have your lights off prompt-like so you could look out and see her and you were the luckiest boy you knew, but you'd never tell anyone because that just causes problems. But you'd always be thinking about telling your friends just to make them jealous. Well, she looked something like that. Only where the girl you watched put more things on before she put out the lights. Like she knew you were there and she wanted to tease you a bit. Just a little joke or something that she had with you, but you'd never acknowledge it in daylight. The green lady, she hardly had anything on. Just some scraps, and they were green too, and... Oh, those scraps. They made her look like she was wearing less than nothing. But they were still there, foiling my eyes. But then I remember myself, and I look up and into her sharp green eyes, because it isn't polite to stare. Before I can say anything, though, she asks me, What use are you? And I say, Well, I can weld, and... And I'm about to start listing off everything I can do, but she says, You'll do. Be good, and do as I say. Don't look through the keyhole, and you'll be fine. Now, come with me. Then she turns around and walks back into the house, and I'm thinking, What keyhole? But what can I do except to follow her? Well, yeah, I looked, and it was still more scraps, still thwarting my eyes, but I didn't mind, really. She leads me into the kitchen, and she hands me a bucket and tells me there's a well out back, and I should draw some water so she can cook dinner. And if the water isn't clear, then I should go try again, and again, until it is. And I go out the door, and there's the well. I draw off one bucket, and it takes me a little while, because the well is deep, and I have to wind and wind and wind the rope. And when the bucket comes up, the water is murky, and I see something moving in it. And I'm just about to throw it out when I hear a voice saying, Wait! Take heed! So I stop, and I look, and there's a fish in the water, talking to me! And so I listen, because I remember stories from when I was a kid, and I know about listening to animals. Even if I'm still wondering if I'm not really dreaming or something. But I don't think I could have imagined the green lady, so I quit that line of thinking again. Eat not the fairy food, says the fish to me. I'm wondering why, but it's just going on about something else, and then just like that, he jumps out of the bucket, and I catch him. But only just. And then I throw out the murky water in the bucket, and put him back in the bucket, and lower it back down. Because it pays to be nice to people who give you advice, even if they're fish, and you don't understand them quite. When I draw the bucket back up, the water is clearer, and I swear I can hear the fish thanking me, but maybe it's just the weird echoes. And maybe there never was a talking fish, but even if there wasn't, I was going to take heed to what he might not have said. Well, I take the water inside like she asked, and I do it quick-like because I don't want to be on her bad side. But looking at her, I can't imagine she has one. And when I get inside, she thanks me and tells me to sweep up while she makes dinner and make sure I'm good and thorough. The way she looks, and everything Charlie and the old man told me, says to do a good job. And I'm getting some ideas despite myself, because, I mean, it's just scraps she's wearing, and how can I not, even if she is green? Well, I sweep up a storm, and I'm just about choking with all the dust in the air, but everything looks good and clean, like she asked, when she comes in. You've done well, she says. And I say thank you, and then she offers me dinner, because I look awful hungry, and I've been working hard. And I can smell what she's been cooking, and now that she mentions it, yeah, I am hungry. 
I'm about to accept her offer when I feel some lump in my pocket and check. And there's another melted chocolate bar. And I remember what the fish might have told me. So I say, no thank you to the food. And I've got my own, thank you. And the green lady accepts that. And she goes into the other room to eat and closes the door. And I'm left there sitting by the fire with my melted chocolate. Sitting there, my mind was wandering. And I start thinking about the green lady and about those little green scraps. And how did they stay on? Then I start thinking about what she told me and what could be so bad about looking through the keyhole. I know she's just eating, but I start thinking about those nights looking out my window with the lights off, and then I can't help myself, and I go over to the door, and I just take a little peek through the keyhole, because really it can't hurt, and maybe I'd be lucky and she wouldn't be eating. Now, I know we were alone in that house, but I thought there might be someone else in the room for a moment, because the beautiful green lady I was hoping for was nowhere to be seen, but there was someone in there, or something. The green lady I knew was sunlit moss, but this thing was pond scum, gnarled and pointed and ugly where I had expected slim, elegant curves and taut skin. I guess I made some noise, because next thing I know, she bursts through the door and all but knocks me down. What did you see, she demands, and I can't say anything, because when she's standing right there over me, she's every bit as glamorous as ever, and between how she looks now and how she looked through the keyhole, I can only stammer... Well, no matter, she says to me. Whatever you saw, you'll see no more. And then everything is blackness, and my head hurts, and I'm being handled all rough, and her hands feel steel strong and clammy, even through my coveralls. Well, she says, I suppose that you did do as I asked, and for that you may go home, if you can find your way. And then she starts laughing and tosses me out on my ass in the forest, and I'm trying to remember which way I'd come from for whatever good that would do. I get up and decide that it doesn't matter which way I go so long as I get away from that awful laughter and that picture of her and her fury that stuck as the last thing that I saw. I hadn't seen any way back to the tunnel when I could see, so I just start stumbling along because going somewhere is better than going nowhere and just sitting feeling sorry for yourself. And part of me is wondering if I can get workers' comp for being struck blind by the green lady while on company time. Well, after I've gone on for a bit, though, I don't know how far, I feel a hand on my shoulder, and a voice says, easy now, and calm down, and follow me, and what can I do but agree? We walk for a little while, and I'm listening to the noises of the forest a lot more now that I can't see, and then the sounds start changing, so instead of birds and bugs, I'm hearing echoes and men's voices, and something about them sounds like her laughter, and then the man I'm following hands me something that feels like a mug heavy like it's full, and says, pour this over your head. And then he's gone, like he'd left long ago, or never been there at all. But I've still got the mug, so I guess, and pour, and the liquid in the mug is colder than winter and gives me a shock when it goes down the back of my neck. I blink, and when I do, I realize that I can see again, though there's not much to be seen, because I'm in a dark subway tunnel away from the work lights. Well, I turn around, even though I know there won't be any doorway, And then I shove the mug in my pocket so I don't forget what happened. How could I forget it? Then I go back down the tunnel towards where the guys are working. And when I get there, one of the guys says, Geez, look, what took you so long? Did the green lady get you? And they all laugh, and I say, Fuck you, and I say I needed to piss, and I leave it at that. And when the shift is over, I take the first stairs topside and decide that if I can't get a bus home, I'll just walk, because I'm not going back down there again. Not for anything, because all those echoes sound like laughter. No, 
I'm going to wake up early every morning and pour myself some coffee in that mug and watch the sunrise. Ta-da! <laughs> I gotta say, I was feeling very sympathetic for the protagonist until he turned into a peeping Tom. Yeah, yeah. I w- <laughs> like, so the, the reason... At this point, the reason it is trunked is I'm like, yeah, this guy's a douchebag, <laughs> and I don't want him to represent me mm. at all. So this is the first story that I got an acceptance on. Oh, um, tell me about that. And this was, this would have been 2011, 2012, when I, I'd been out of college for a year, I'd been you know, sending out a lot of stories, mm-hmm. mostly getting rejections. And I sent this this story out, which I'd written the previous year at some point for, like, a class where I'd been not explicitly told not to write science fiction, but <laughs> told to, like, you know, maybe keep it more towards, like, the folktale end of things mm, to make it more acceptable. And I, so I wrote this thing, and... Definitely, it was one of those, like, very tonal things that I probably wouldn't write now, just because, like, those sentences I I have cut in editing all the time, so I had to <laughs> stop and start again, because I wrote these just ungodly, like, paragraph-long sentences. Pro tip, read your writing out loud. Yes, pro t- <laughs> If I had known then what I know now, mm-hmm. I would not have written this damn thing. <laughs> For a variety of reasons, but I send it out to this market and wait a while, and then I get an acceptance back, and I'm like, oh my god, I made it finally. I'm a real writer. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, it wasn't the first story I'd had accepted, but it was the first story that I'd had accepted for money. Always a great milestone. Yep, always (laughs) a good milestone. And I'm I'm not mentioning this market's name because I don't want to put them on blast, because... Mm -hmm. What happened was, you know, I immediately said, like, yeah, absolutely, I'll sell you this story because I want some money because I am poor. And at the point that I got the uh, acceptance, had no job, so any money was better than nothing. Checks out, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but I was also getting ready to move from Philadelphia to Oakland. So I was like, okay, well... Yes, I will. I would like to do this. Can you send the contract to Oakland, where I'm going to be living mm-hmm. very soon? And I move across the country and arrive and get the contract. And I don't know if I made a photocopy of the contract. I think they only had the one copy that. And this was this is 2012, so people were still doing paper contracts, right, still mailing contracts that you would mail to the person you're buying a story from, and then they would sign it. And mail it to you, and then you'd countersign it and mail it back to them. And, you know, I wasn't thinking anything about, like, that this would fall through or anything, so I... Right, you're in good faith. You're like, I've signed, I'm going to send it back to them, they'll sign and send it back to me. And I sign it, and I send it off to them, and wait, and wait, and I start my new job, and I'm not doing a whole lot of writing, because, like... Working a full-time real adult job for the first time is a a fair bit of work. And, like, you have to find your work-life balance and all Mm -hmm. that. And you feel like your brain's getting squeegeed for the first many weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like, learning the layout of a complex campus and 
learning everybody's names at the same time and like yeah it, it was a lot and eventually i write back and I'm like, hey, you know, I sent you this contract. Uh, is anything gonna happen, guys? And wait a while, and wait a while, and wait a while. And, like, I think it probably took them six months to write back and say, oh, we've had some complications, and uh, we're definitely gonna publish this soon. Keep in mind, this was also a market that paid on publication. Of course. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know. Other pro tip. Other pro tip. <laughs> if, you, if you can afford to, submit to markets the pay on acceptance instead, because that is... A great thing, yeah. Yeah. Like, even if they never publish your story, you've got money, mm -hmm. which is important. So, yeah, I, I waited and waited and waited, and eventually, like, oh, a year, maybe more than a year after Ouch. the initial acceptance, I got... <laughs> a uh, message from the editor saying, hey, we were looking through our stack of uh, stories that we, you know, want to buy and, like, haven't done anything with yet and found yours and uh, we're starting this new, like, this new showcase on our website where we'll put up, like, one story from each issue online and we'd love to have your story be that for the first issue. And I'm like, if you're still interested. And I was like, yes, I am still interested. Uh, like, here is my updated address. I mm -hmm. moved in that time. And like... Please mail me the contract. Yeah, like, I, I would love to have a countersigned contract returned to me or a new contract sent, especially because I think they, they also said like, oh yeah, and we've updated our pay rate. So you'd mm -hmm. be getting paid more. And I was like... That's great. That's Definitely awesome. take like, that. Yeah. I have a real adult job, but I'd still like to get paid because this is 2013 now, which is like still recovering from the economy being terrible and, mm -hmm. you know, wasn't getting paid a huge amount, especially for the Bay Area. And, and I send them my response and wait and wait and wait and like, checking their website constantly mm -hmm. and just at, at a certain point I just gave up and said okay you know it has been almost eight years since I got the acceptance on this story oh my god and I, I think I sent it out one other time to like uncanny or something yeah but I was like kind of feeling shaky on it at that point because I was like oh this is this guy's problematic. Like, I don't know. And so I eventually just mm -hmm. stuck it in the trunk because I was like, you get, you move on, you move on. And like, this doesn't represent me anymore. I, I don't know that I, I probably would have picked this story by myself. I ended up just like choosing three stories I knew I had stories about mm -hmm. and doing a Twitter poll before recording this. Cause I was like, I don't know how my guests do this. <laughs> Like, how how do you pick out, especially because, like, I don't know, my, my retired folder and my Dropbox is, like, 30 or 40 stories in there, mm -hmm. and not all of them are finished, but, like... Right. And, you know, what's going to be something that's not mortifying to read, yeah. but also, like, you know, you can explain why you put it away eventually, yeah. and all of that, yeah, all of that calculus. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I briefly thought about reading the first story I ever 
submitted, which I've I've told some stories. I have some good stories about it, but mm-hmm. it is truly mortifying to read <laughs> and also like very long. Mm-hmm. Like ve- like uh, what this one this story I just read is thirty eight hundred words, and I think mm-hmm. that one oh I can just pull it up. I have these stories all uh okay and, and this story the first one i ever submitted is 6600 words long so like oh you're really edging up in the yeah. like not quite a short story anymore yeah and like it. you know i didn't really know mm-hmm. about what was like short story length at the time i just sort of was like i mean when i wrote that one i was a literal teenager who yeah. was just like this is gold this is amazing <laughs> who wouldn't want to publish this yeah. yeah there's i mean there's a lot of kind of inside baseball around oh my god yeah. things, pay, you know word count limits and kind of what that sweet spot is and i i feel like that can all feel very very opaque um, yeah. when you're a baby a baby writer just starting out and, yeah yeah absolutely and especially like you know, if if I were starting out now, I would have so much more, so many more resources available to me. Like because I don't the think, internet. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think the, that Duotropes Digest was there mm-hmm. in two thousand and five. Certainly, the Submission Grinder wasn't there. Like I, I think I started using Duotrope when it was free back in college, mm-hmm. uh, but that was you know more than a decade ago at this point. Yeah, and I don't think people were even writing, you know, those kind of how-tos about a cover letter isn't yeah. what you think it is. It's a very, you know, it's just very brief and yep. giving all those tips and so forth. Yeah, and it, I think some of that, I feel like some of that has changed a little bit because mm-hmm. electronic submissions are the norm. And like, you know, my my cover letters now, I don't have any record and don't want to have any record of the cover letters I was writing when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. I, I had this like set idea from that I'd gotten from my dad who worked for Pulps in mm, the 80s. That's right, yeah. That like a cover letter was supposed to be snappy and clever and not what my cover letters are now, which is, you know... I either, wrote a story. Here it yeah. is. <laughs> it, it's either, you know dear editor's name if I know Mm -hmm. specifically who the editor is so which is basically just if I'm submitting to fantasy and science fiction that I'll address it dear Charlie Mm because like we have that level of rapport and when Shimmer was open I would open my cover letters dear Badgers because again Badger Pride Badger Pride mm -hmm. Hufflepuff Pride and I had that level of rapport with them of like shit posting on Twitter with them about badger stuff. <laughs> R.I.P. Shimmer. Yeah. They Shimmer tweeted happy birthday to me the other day, Aww. which was like adorable with the the badger 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 holding a happy birthday banner. And I was like That's very sweet. That's kind. Yeah. Thank you guys. Yeah. But well oh, yeah. So I like I had this idea of like snappy cover letters, whereas now it's just Dear Editor Please find attached my story X, X many words long, genre as necessary. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Two word, or like two sentence bio. Yeah. 
and the bio I don't even put in unless they specifically say, Ask like, for put your bio in the cover letter. Exactly. So any baby writers listening, that's all you need to do, yeah. really. <laughs> you really don't need to, like... You don't want to be memorable. You don't... The only reason you'd be memorable at this point is if you do something, like, really heinous or if you manage something really, really clever, but... Remember that as, is it Scalzi who says that uh, asshole is the failure mode of clever? <laughs> I'm not sure, but that's great. Yeah. So just be mindful that clever edges into asshole really quickly mm-hmm. and like, you don't want that. You don't need that. Yeah. Best not to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my 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 whole idea of cover letters is based off of when my dad was working for Pulps in the 80s, mm-hmm. he got, uh, he was, this is back in the, like, paper manuscript days, I mean, 1980s, but he was one day just assigned to, like, okay, here's a bunch of manuscripts that are being returned, because back then you didn't just have, like, easy, quick printouts from right. computers. Yeah. Some of these were typewritten, and he would... His job was to take the cover letter off of the manuscript, put the manuscript in its return el- envelope, put the cover letter in the circular file, repeat. And, like, he'd glance over... Usually he'd glance over the cover letters. He wouldn't really read anything because it had been rejected by enough people mm-hmm. already. You know, he trusted the process. But he was going through the, these, and he gets this cover letter, and he reads it over, and he reads it over again, and he says to his, himself, my god, this is the greatest cover letter ever written. It's got a mi- beginning, a middle, and an end. This writer is going somewhere. And so he sticks it in a, uh, like, mylar sleeve and takes it home with him. And he, he didn't, you know, he wasn't going to change his mind on the story. It ended mm-hmm. up selling, I think he said it, that story sold a couple of years later to another magazine once the author had already made a name for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the author of that cover letter and the story, I don't know what the story was, was Lois McMaster Bushold. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so, you know, years later he sees her at a convention and he said, uh, he sees that she's going to be at the mm-hmm. convention. And so he brings the still pre- preserved cover letter with him. In the Mylar sleeve. And he says, I saved this cover letter. I was your first fan. Oh. And he still has that. I have, That's I have amazing. photographic evidence of this cover letter. Yeah, you should put it in the show notes. I should. Yeah, so, like, this is my whole idea when I'm a teenager of what mm-hmm. cover letters should be. And, like, my kind of my whole idea of, like, the whole submissions process was based on this one cover letter. I mean, model, trying to model yourself after Lois McMaster Bujold is oh, not absolutely. a terrible uh, <laughs> path to go on. But yeah. yeah, I think the rest of us, the the uh, the overlapping Venn diagram for clever and asshole is is much dicier than, than yeah. it is for her. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, keep in mind that this was a cover letter for a story that got rejected. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I it's admirable to want to write the greatest cover letter ever written, but... You're probably, Other, she already did it. You're probably better served just trying to write a great story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the cover letter is never going to sell the story. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah.
That's um, truth. So I'm curious, though, revisiting this story, if there are parts of it that you you still like or that you think like, oh, that's an early, you know, what what Hillary the writer is now. I can, yeah. I can see glimpses of that because I really enjoyed the fact that it was a portal fantasy, but featuring, you know, blue collar worker, which is not something we see very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so the the parts of it that I see most firmly as like this is still very much one of my stories mm-hmm. are the parts of it that like I still write a lot of I write a lot of blue collar sort of heroes and like sort of like socialist writing in mm-hmm. general which I think like even more in the last however many hellish years of politics is like really important to me to be writing like specifically socialist and anti-fascist things Mm -hmm. but I grew up around a lot of like labor organizers and blue collar work and so that's always it's one of those things that I'm like you don't see that so much Mm -hmm. and that's important to me because it represents a lot of the people like when I grew up Uh, Where I was in Philadelphia growing up was still, like, West Philadelphia, not University City. And University Mm -hmm. City now has crept over... Oh, yeah, the the amoeba blob that's absorbing everything, yeah. Like, I don't know, when I was was a kid, like, University City pretty much ended at, like, 43rd or something. Mm -hmm. And I was living over closer to 50th, and now, like... University City extends at least as far as 47th, if not farther. But so I was I was still growing up in, like, a blue-collar, you know, predominantly African-American neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that, like, writing that... At the time, I wasn't thinking these things specifically, but at the time, I was just like, you don't get Philadelphia in stories a lot. Yeah. I feel like, especially true, yeah. reading science fiction and fantasy, like, I've, I've never remembered reading a story that was set in Philadelphia. I I could be just misremembering things, but like, you know, I spent a quarter of a decade in that city pretty much. Like it's it's in my bones. And so that was like most of my early stories were set in Philadelphia. I think two of the three No, only one of the three stories that I put in the Twitter poll was set in Philly. This was the only one. But like Four or five of the early stories that I, like, tried to sell were all set in parts of Philadelphia and, like, werewolves in Fairmount Park. We've got a portal fantasy in the Septa Tunnels. Like, we've got, like, cryptids riding the trolley, things like that. <laughs> and, like, a Did lot of Did you ever have that... something set in a Wawa? I don't think... Somehow I don't think I ever had a Wawa in any of my stories, and now I need to, like do that entirely yeah Yeah. Uh, (laughs) that could be a whole subgenre yeah i have a i have a just deep affection for for oh absolutely i would trade every well maybe i shouldn't say this out loud (laughs) on your podcast but i would trade every in and out in this state for one wawa (laughs) i would trade every in and out in this state for one wawa as well yeah let's let's make no bones about it in and out is frankly i don't get the the like the hype? It's yeah. fast food. It's, it's, just, it's a burger. It's, like, it's, it's a Jesus a, burger. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. And it's like, fries with Thousand Island dressing. Yeah. 
No, not to say that there's anything wrong with Jesus. <laughs> but it's a Jesus burger. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't get why... Like, the the one in and out in Alameda is, like, always got a million cars in They're line. They're always packed. No yeah. matter, like, when you're driving down the 5 to L.A. and you stop at any in and out even in the middle of the desert, you're like, where where did all these people come from? Yeah. I don't understand. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, granted, if there were a Wawa here... Oh, I like, would line up for it, for every, sure. You would find every Philadelphian in the Bay Area mm-hmm. immediately. Oh, it's like when the Rita is open yeah. in Alameda. I was like, well, I guess we'll see all the Philly transplants. Yep. And we did. Yep. Yeah, and the, the Flavor Brigade on at uh, Fruitvale and MacArthur mm-hmm. as well. Like, the first time I visited Oakland, I was in the Flavor Brigade, and somebody just ran in off the street and was like, Yo, you got water ice? Water ice? Yeah. I love that, John. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So... Anyway. <laughs> the, the, like, working class heroes mm-hmm. is definitely one part of it. And then the other thing that is, like definitely still me is my obsession with tunnels like not even necessarily as like an avenue towards portal fantasies Mm -hmm. but just i like the way to get downtown from west philadelphia basically or from like southwest philly which is what people are really talking about when they say west philly is you take the trolley. Mm-hmm. And the trolley goes underground at 40th, unless you're riding the 10, and then it goes underground at, like, 36th or something. And so you're in a tunnel for probably a good half of your trolley ride to get downtown. And, like, you'll also get it if you ride the L or if you try ride the Broad Street line. But, like, all of these... Like, I spent so much time in tunnels, and, like, I remember when I was a tiny small child that I wanted nothing more than to sit in the very back of, like, the back row of seats in SEPTA trolleys is, like, I think six seats all across the back with this huge window, Mm -hmm. and I would just want to sit there in the back seat (laughs) and face backwards and watch... When we went underground, just watch the light disappearing. <laughs> and then, you were a very existential child. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, going to... I went to high school in Center City, so I was just riding the trolley twice a day, every day, for years. Mm-hmm. And I would just be like, if I could get a seat, sitting in a seat, staring out the window, watching these, like patches of blacker darkness going past and the intermittent lights and and just thinking about like oh what's behind like what's through those doors and like there is a section at uh 13th street juniper station there's a section of track that just goes off and i i have no idea what it goes to like it would be cool to know i imagine that as i said in the story it's Mm -hmm. just some more track but like it's all of these, like, branching things and, like, when I was in middle school and high school, I'd like to stand right at the front because the driver's window isn't, you know, tinted so that you can't see out super mm-hmm. well. And, like, I could watch the switches going and, like, watch all this stuff and, like, the trolleys were crowded so I could pretty much guarantee that I'd just be crammed in up there anyway. But, yeah, like... I feel like in some ways that was sort of my my obsession with 
tunnels, but to a larger extent, like, my obsession with fantasy as a gateway to what could those tunnels bring. Mm -hmm. So those are, like, I like those parts. I've definitely done the conversational narrator thing before, or since, since writing this story, but I've also learned to read my stories out loud as part of my editing <laughs> process, so they never get that bad. Yeah, those are the things I like about the story. The, mm -hmm. the rest of it, like, I like the portal fantasy. I like the trolleys. I like the working class hero. I dislike the character. I dislike how creepy he is. Like, and like, every once in a while, I would think like, oh, well, you know, this story did sell mm -hmm. one time. So like, it could do it again. And then... You know, the last couple of times I thought that, I was like, yeah, but Do I, I, even I don't want to be that guy anymore. Yeah. Like, this is, this is like, this is an unenlightened white guy story, and I'd like to think I'm a little bit more enlightened than that. Like, mm -hmm. just the, the absolute cishatness of the story really bothers me now. And, you know, it's, it's another one of those things I never give up on ideas I really like. Mm -hmm. So, like, I might cherry-pick some bits out of this later, but, you know, I'm not... I'm never going to sell this story. It's in the trunk. Right. You would need to, to sort of pull it to pieces yeah. in order to, to take out the bits that are yeah. salvageable. Yeah. Yeah. How do you... I'm curious, just in general, like, when when do you decide to trunk a story? Oh. I, I mean, it's probably yeah. different for every story. I mean, but... for every story, it's different. I think, in general, it's when I've run out of pro and semi-pro paying markets mm -hmm. I like I've never been a person who will not send stories to anything less than pro paying markets because there are a lot of like Shimmer is a perfect example Shimmer for most of its life not a pro paying market would I want to sell a story there if they were still open absolutely mm -hmm. like 100% I would sell a story to Shimmer if they paid any amount at all pretty much like, because they're of their voice. Right. But, like, I'm not... I'm The first two so stories I ever had accepted were to unpaying markets. And one of them was... They're both flash, flash fiction pieces I wrote for fiction classes in college. And uh, for the same professor, even. Mm. I think different classes, same professor... And one of them I sold to 365 Tomorrows, which I don't know if it still exists, but at the time it was a science fiction, flash fiction publication that published Flash daily on LiveJournal. Blast from the past, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah unpaying, unpaying market, and I just like sent there on a whim because... That professor was, like, the first professor, shouts to Lockie Hunter, first professor I'd ever had who said, like, yeah, try to sell your stuff. Like, That's here's great. how yeah. to sell things. Very and, important. like, she was the one who pointed every student who had any interest in writing towards Duotrope and would probably be pointing them towards Duotrope or the Submission Grinder now that Duotrope is paid, mm -hmm. um, which makes so much sense and also was like really sad for me until I discovered the submission grinder. Uh, shouts to Dave and Stefan. But 
Yeah, so I, I sent that out, and then I sent out another story that I'd written to actually another calendar-based market that mm-hmm. was like a year of, of stories that was like 365 stories, and I was like June something, I think, and I probably on some hard drive I have the galleys for that, but I don't, like just for my story, but right. I didn't even get a contributor copy mm. of that it was on Duotrope you could get listed as I don't think no, I don't think Duotrope listed it as for the love, but like a lot of markets, especially then, would be like unpaying markets that they would list their pay rate as for the love mm-hmm. of like for the love <laughs> of writing, which is honestly it's just as skeezy a thing to say as like for exposure. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of slides into the whole do what you love yeah. so that we don't and, have to pay you yeah. so we can exploit your labor. Uh, yay! yay! <laughs> Capitalism! This might be why I write so many socialist stories. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, I was, like, I, I've, I've sold stories to unpaying markets, but at this point, like, mm-hmm. anything that's, lower than semi-pro... Like, anything that dips below one cent a word, which typically means, like, you know, a $50 flat fee or something, yeah. unless I'm only selling, like, a 100-word story or something, like, for 100 words, I would take a $50 flat fee. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, like, trunking is a calculus for me of, is there any place that will take this? And... So something can go into the trunk, and sometimes things come back out Mm -hmm. if, like, a market opens up that is good. But if a market opens up, I have to, like, actually read the story again and decide if it's something that I feel, like, represents me. Because, like, there are things I wrote a decade ago like this that absolutely I wouldn't want to put my name on anymore, except Mm -hmm. I just read it on my podcast. (laughs) You played um, yourself. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, like, I think for the most part, like, there's no firm date cutoff, because mm-hmm. there are some things that I wrote a decade ago that I feel better about than this, that are less problematic, certainly. But I'd say also that, like, things I wrote a decade ago, I didn't have as firm a grasp on story. So, like... You know, if I didn't sell them then, I probably wouldn't sell them now either. Mm -hmm. Like, the longest, the most submissions I have on a single story before it either trunked or got sold was, like, 20, I think. And that was, you know, 20 in the course of two-ish years? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, doing that many submissions, there's a time element, too, Mm -hmm. where... You know, sometimes if you're like, yeah, always throw it into the the Clark's world slush because they get back to you so fast. But yeah, other places you might not hear back for for months, and then you know, and there's always that other market that opens and closes in that time. You're yep. like, ah, damn it! <laughs> like yeah. I really wanted to send it to them. Um, so and they don't do sim subs, and right. the market you have it out to doesn't do yeah. sim subs. Yeah, yeah, and there's definitely. You know, I've I've had stories where just after several rounds of submissions, you're like, okay, well, a year or two have passed, and I don't, 
yeah, I don't know if this represents me so much anymore. Or yeah, like there are other things I'm more interested in sending out and, and all of that. So. Yeah. And a, a lot of it is just like the, the submissions game is like physically and mentally taxing. Like every market has, despite the fact that we have electronic submissions mm -hmm. and everybody is just, you know, basically sending you a text file, every market has different desires for how they want things formatted and like you know so you have to have a million versions and mm -hmm. you have to have your like blind submission version and you have to have right to anonymize know. or the one that you know is yeah the header is a certain way and yeah all the things yeah. yeah and then you have to like track down who's open and like make sure that you're putting it in your tracker so that you're not accidentally sim subbing or you know all all of I these know. things and then just like the mental exhaustion of okay i got this story rejected again this was a zero day rejection which mm -hmm. like great i can send it back out but zero days jesus christ yeah. like I was so hopeful. I mean, it's like going on a million first dates, you yeah. know, and sometimes people ghost you and yeah. sometimes they tell you right away there's there's nothing there and you still have to, you know, stay hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, the the nice thing with writing, at least, is that you get to be a different person for... That's true. Like, you know, and, and you, you get to be a different person going on different kinds of dates. Like, mm -hmm. I wouldn't send this story anywhere anymore, but I wouldn't send it to, like... Certain market, right. Yeah, I wouldn't send this to Pseudopod, because, like, mm -hmm. they don't want a portal fantasy. They want horror. Yeah. And, like, I wouldn't send a horror story to... I mean, I'd, like... Yeah. Like, different places have different desires. Different places have... I, I definitely threw a bunch of things at Shimmer that I knew probably weren't shimmery enough. Mm -hmm. But, like... As I, as I say at the end of every episode, like, you don't self-reject. Mm -hmm. But exactly. you also have to, like, be strategic. Because, like, some of them have a forever turnaround. And, like, sometimes the forever turnaround is just they are that slow. Sometimes it is, you know, things happening outside of your control or mm -hmm. outside of their control. Yeah. Like, I had a, I had a story that got lost, was passed up the editorial chain, and I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to sell to, like, a real pro market. Mm -hmm. And then, like, they had some major personnel issues happen at the market, and, like, it got lost. And then, like, eventually I was like, okay, well, they've said, I think somebody mentioned to me that someone saying on Codex, like, Everything should be responded to now. If you haven't heard back, you know, do mm. query at mm -hmm. this address. And so I, I queried and waited a while, and eventually they were like, yeah, no, sorry. Which is like, you know, it happens. It happens, yeah. It doesn't change that I got my hopes up, and it doesn't change that, like, that story was out of commission for a year, pretty mm -hmm. much. Yeah. And, like, you know, that's lousy. Yeah. And in the meantime, like, depending on... You know, I, I have, like, 250, 300 lifetime submissions. Mm -hmm. And, like, there are years where I have zero submissions. Like, I, I maybe sent something out last year. I have two or three subs 
on record for this year, but, like, the years where I sent out, like, 50 or more submissions in a year, like, I was writing stories constantly, and, like, the last year I wrote nothing, and this year I've written a couple of Flash things that have been universally agreed upon that they are not flash fiction. They are, like, the starts of novellas, oh. at least. And I'm like, that's cool and all. But, but like... when do like, I write that? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. granted, I'm not going to be, hopefully, not changing jobs again this year. And I'm not going to be moving into a new house. So, mm-hmm. like, I have a lot more mental energy in that respect. But also, like... I'm producing a podcast and have, you know, podcast obligations and have work obligations and have, like, life keeps going. Like, Mm -hmm. and the most important thing for me has been, like, realizing that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, being okay with, I didn't write anything last year because I started this podcast and that's Mm -hmm. super cool. Like, like, you know, I'm... I am making a bit of money off of the Patreon for it. It's almost all going back into the show or into other people's Patreons, uh, which is, like, kind of neither here nor there, but it's like I'm putting something out into the world that is meaningful to me. Yeah. And, like... And helping support other creative endeavors and and other creators. And helping support other creative endeavors. Like, every month, more than half of my Patreon funds go directly back out to other creators who are, like super important to me and like whose work I really want to support and like that's cool and getting to make this show like I was listening to the the live episode of The Illusionist uh that was recorded at PodCon where uh the host is just talking about the word podcast Mm. uh and how a lot of people dislike the word podcast and because, like, some people are like, oh, well, it comes from iPod. And, and like, yeah, I remember yeah. when podcasts were a new thing and people were like, well, do we call this netcasts instead? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I, I maybe briefly was a terrible hipster who was like, I'm going to call it a netcast and listen to it on my iPod. Which makes it a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. All words are made up. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, it turns out. <laughs> Spoiler alert, prescriptivism in grammar is it's colonialist. <laughs> Jinx. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about, you know, I mean, congratulations on season one. Thank and you. keeping this thing going, because it is, it's a huge endeavor, and obviously a labor of love, but also yeah. congratulations for making some money off of it. Thank you. Can you just tell me a little bit about, like, just, yeah, what this experience has been like for you, what you've learned, um, maybe what you would tell baby podcaster Hillary? Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's take a trip in that time machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, the biggest thing that I, I say on Twitter a lot, especially right after I record an episode, is podcasting is the best thing I've done in a long time because this podcast, like, most of the time, it's not us talking face-to-face in person, but, like, it's just me talking to friends. Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, Merck Rustad was tweeting about this pretty recently as of the time of this recording, about that that was one of the things they appreciate about this show, is that it is just, like, 
two pals having some hangout time and like inviting you into this space and for me like even if nobody else were listening to this show like I appreciate that I have you know a record judging judging by the stats I get I have like 30 or 40 diehard fans who do download and listen to every episode when it comes out and that's super cool but like even if they weren't doing it like I wouldn't get to meet some of the people and like I wouldn't get to actually talk to a lot of my friends voice to voice like most of my friends who have been on the podcast most of the people who have been on the podcast have been my friends so far and most of them I only know through Twitter or Slack and nowhere else. Like, mm-hmm. of the, let's see, this is the April episode, so we will have had, this will have been episode 14. Of the 14 episodes I've recorded, I only know three of my guests IRL. And that's you and RK Duncan and Sarah Gailey. Like, only three who I've met IRL. Exalted company. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, like, I have a few more coming up who, like, I actually finally met at Worldcon two years ago. Mm -hmm. Coming up later in this season. But, like, most of my... Like, the the thing about social media is, like, the social part. Which I remember I was talking to, to Katie on our February episode about, of, like... People talk too much about the media and not enough about the social. And, like, Mm -hmm. I know so many people through Twitter or Slack. And, like, Katie is a perfect example of somebody who had been a guest. uh, And I want to say it was Val who was on the July episode reached out to me and was like, Hey, I think Katie would be a great person to be on the show. Would you like, like... Can we make that happen? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, especially at that point, I didn't have a lot of my year planned out. Like, at this point, I have 10 of 12 guests for this season either already recorded or, like, I have a firm commitment from them, which is super cool. And, like, I wasn't in that place. Like, this time last year, I was just finishing editing my first episode that would be going up in a uh, week and like I had my first three episodes recorded because I was being a good podcaster Mm -hmm. and keeping a buffer but I had just like the smallest idea of what I was going to do beyond that like I was pretty sure that I would have Kate on in June and like was talking to friends, but mm-hmm. it was just like, at that point, I was just a, a stranger with a microphone. You yeah. Know? With like, a dream. And, yeah, a microphone <laughs> and a dream. A dream of a podcast. But yeah, like, the fact that I get to do this and, like, get to have people on and get to meet new people at this point, like, still a bunch of the people who are going to be on this next season are people I know online or in person Mm -hmm. but like uh next month two months two months from now uh spoiler alert two months from now like i'm gonna have fran wild on the show and like 
that's bonkers. Like, I know people who know Fran, but, Mm -hmm. like, and I have, like, a huge number of connections with Fran, especially because we both went to Warren Wilson College. Uh, I went there for undergrad. She got her MFA there. But, like, we have so many points of overlap and have never met. And, like, uh, next month's guest, uh, Annalie Flowerhorn, like, I've known them on Twitter for ages and because we are both Quaker and from the East Coast, we know approximately one million of the same people. <laughs> and Those Venn diagrams are just a circle. Yeah. No, it's absolutely bonkers that we never actually have met each other in mm-hmm. person. But, like, getting to do that is so cool. And that's, um, like, that is the best thing mm-hmm. about the show. And, like, so I guess what I would tell baby podcaster me or baby podcaster anybody is, like, and this is going back to that episode of The Illusionist that I'll make sure to link in the show notes, is what the host was saying, like, what podcasts mean to her is that nobody is telling her what to do. She gets to make her thing and be authentic to herself. And, like, The Illusionist is a deeply dorky show about language. And I love it. And I would recommend you subscribe to it as well. And they release episodes more regularly than I do, like, more than once a month usually. But, like, do the show. You know, when I when I started this show, I initially had, like, tweeted out in, like, January of 2019, like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if there were a show that did this? And, like, my, my concept originally was more around having writers on to specifically read embarrassing juvenilia Um, (laughs) and then you're like oh that might be a harder sell (laughs) yeah well i didn't even say that would be a hard sell sarah gailey said my dude that would be a super hard sell (laughs) like if you're famous maybe but like Mm -hmm. a stranger with a microphone you're not going to be able to get a lot of people on but trump stuff i would absolutely be on that show and i was like that Sarah Gailey, yeah. the best ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they absolutely, if you can get an idea from Sarah Gailey, do it. Yeah, that's very true. Very true. Um, Pro tip. So yeah, like, what I would tell anyone who's, who's thinking about doing podcasts is like, honestly, like, don't listen to the people on Reddit who are like, the first thing you need to do if you want a podcast is go out and spend $500 <laughs> on gear. Mm-hmm. Like, that is absurd. If you have a computer and you have a microphone and it can be microphone on your headphones for your, you know, your phone or whatever, you can make a podcast. Like, like my, the first three episodes of this show, I recorded with a USB microphone that I borrowed from my work and was just like, I'm taking this mic. Nobody ever checks it out. I feel good about just like absconding with it for a month. Mm -hmm. And called up my friends over Skype or Hangouts or whatever and said, okay, we're going to do a podcast. And, like, like I talked to people who had done podcasts. I asked Macy from Be the Serpent, like, what do you guys do? And she just said, yeah, we use Hangouts. We mm-hmm. each record separately, and then Alex mixes nice it all together. together. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. That makes sense. And, like, I, I asked Fred Yost... And he was also like, yeah, I just, like, that's what I do. I just, like, record it, mix it all together. And, like, 
Podcasting is so democratic because all you need is an RSS feed and some MP3s. Mm -hmm. Like, that's all that podcasting is. But it is... I mean, to me, it is the promise of radio because it's like... Like, I grew up on on public radio. I grew grew up on This American Life and, like, all these shows where it's people getting to tell their stories. And it's, you know, it's heavily produced and it is very much like gate kept like you have to you have to be extremely lucky and know the right people to like break into public radio mm-hmm. and you have to have the right public radio voice. and you have to have a good public radio <laughs> voice have to be roman mars yeah when i <laughs> when i decided to do this show i was like yeah you better believe i'm gonna do a 99 percent invisible outro on this <laughs> like there is there is no way I can record a podcast in Oakland and not say that it is produced in beautiful Oakland, California. But yeah, like, nobody can tell you not to do a podcast. Like, the worst yeah. thing that happens is you record a podcast and nobody listens to it. Which and is then like, you still have the recording yeah, on the thing that you really it. care about. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. And like, like, you guys started a podcast... Because it was the thing that you love. Like, mm-hmm. And you know. Paris and I just really wanted to talk about Peter Whimsey novels with each other. Yeah. And we knew that, you know, like maybe five other people would be would be interested in that as well. So yeah. it was like, okay, yeah, if nothing else, we have a record of our thoughts about it that, you know, some of our friends would also like to listen to. And, and turns out there's a giant niche yeah. audience there's of people who love Dorothy Sayers. Who absolutely wanted the Dorothy Sayers podcast yeah. or another Dorothy Sayers podcast. And like, you don't know that if you don't do it. Like, yeah. And, and it's really true. Like the most rewarding thing has been meeting other fans mm-hmm. and their generosity, you know, of, of academics reaching out and saying, I have expertise in this. I'd love to guest and talk about, you know, Sarah's relationships, or we recently threw out, you know, this question about, well, it seems like they're talking a lot about glands Mm -hmm. um, in these books, and we know nothing about the history of neuroscience. Sure, one of our listeners does, and sure enough, you know, someone reached out and said, I could talk about that, and so we get to learn as well. But yeah, yeah, I think you just learn so much about the generosity of other people. It's true, yeah, and it's, it is like, it's very democratic mm-hmm. and it's very much just like you don't know the people who are out there yeah. unless you do it. It, it. it is just like, don't self-reject. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. exactly what it is. Good advice. So like, if I, you know, if I could tell you one thing listening to this podcast other than like, you know, it's okay that whether or not you sell something, whether or not you trunk something, all that's good. It's like, yeah, just do the thing. Like, you don't know who else is going to need that in their life without making it. Like, mm-hmm. like I don't know, sports metaphor time. You miss 100% of the shots you don't make. It's that exact same thing. Like, nobody's going to listen to your podcast if you never make it. And like... You know, I made this show, I started out as as a, like, semi-joking idea on Twitter of, like, oh, this would be cool to hear. And then I was like, well, no, I have at least three friends, so I can make <laughs> at least three episodes. And after I've made three episodes, like, hopefully I'll be able to get more people on. Mm-hmm. And, I Spoiler mean, I joke alert. about you having did. at least three friends. I have 
you way have more, more friends. Than three friends. <laughs> I have at least twelve friends who are writers, and yeah, like just making it happen. Like this, I wanted to hear this show, and nobody else was going to make it, and so I was going to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, yeah, it's it is easy. the The money I have spent on this show has been hosting for the podcast, which has been entirely taken care of by Patreon, which is cool. It's amazing. I spent some money on merch, which again, the pot, the Patreon has taken care of. I got a microphone as a birthday present. I record using free software. I, you know, I use Google Hangouts or Skype, which is free to conduct interviews. Like, you can absolutely do a podcast. And like, we're both living proof of that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know... I asked some people, you asked me and some other people when you were starting As My Whimsy Takes Me. Good save, Bismiex. <laughs> like, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would, that's what I would tell baby podcaster me or baby co- podcaster anybody else is like, make the podcast, do the podcast, don't listen to Reddit, don't spend yeah. $500 of no. equipment. Like, that's... Here's With so many thing. other things, Reddit is just like, here, let's do gear porn and yeah. make everybody else want to do that thing. Yeah. The, the threshold does not need to be that. Yeah. Certainly not. Yeah. We're both proof of that. Yeah. So. Yeah. And like, like the same thing with, like, I don't know, I haven't ever asked the origin story for Be the Serpent, but like, that's just three redheaded fantasy authors yelling about fan fiction for an hour <laughs> fortnightly and like they got a hugo nomination out of that in their maybe their first not their first season maybe their first season i don't remember they got a hugo nomination out of it like the same year that ao3 won the hugo award Mm -hmm. for best related work so like there is an audience you know for for that like of course there was an audience for that but like whatever you're interested in other people want to know about it too. Like, we're joking. I, think, I don't remember if it made it onto the episode or not. Uh, but Annalie and I were joking about like we should do a podcast in Esperanto about Quakerism <laughs> because you'd find an audience for it. Any person who speaks Esperanto, every single person in the world who speaks Esperanto, would subscribe automatically, no matter what it's about, because mm-hmm. it's in Esperanto. And you'd probably get some actual Quaker, other Quakers who speak Esperanto. Yeah. Like, or Quakers who then learn Esperanto yeah. to listen to the podcast. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, do a shit post. Do a shit post, commit it to audio, and somebody will be here for it. <laughs> this, is, this is my lesson here for everybody. Just do that. Great thing. advice. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. All right. And on that note, should we wrap up? Yeah. Um, Was there anything else you wanted to bring up or mention? Oh, anything you want to promote? Oh, yeah. Uh, So I would like to promote this podcast that you're already listening (laughs) to. I would like to briefly promote your podcast as well, because you were gracious enough to come on and play host for me. And, you know, I think it's only fair to say that uh, you and Karis host As My Whimsy Takes Me, a podcast about Dorothy Sayers' 
Lord Peter Whimsey mystery novels. If you are interested in murder or whimsy. <laughs> Whimsical murder? Yeah. Murderous whimsy? Uh, train timetables. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I have to record <laughs> that one. You'll get there eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and all the other topics that come out of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely subscribe. Take a listen. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Insta as at HBBisniex. And you're on Twitter as at Pensif. Correct. Yes. P-E-N-S-Y-F. Yeah. That's where I can be found. I don't have anything else. I don't have anything to plug that is my own that is not this show currently. <laughs> uh, Hugo voting has, or Hugo nominations have closed at this point, so mm -hmm. I can't tell you to vote for the show or nominate the show. And I guess I should leave a space in here to just like flip out at the absolute banana pants idea if like someone called me up and said, hey, you're on the Hugo ballot. Like, yeah, that'd be cool, but I'm not holding my breath or anything. <laughs> tiny well, podcast, could, still a tiny leave audience. some space to tell people to vote for you if, yeah. uh, if that were the case. I, I will, uh, yeah, if I'm on the Hugo ballot, vote for me, please. <laughs> that'd be bananas. It's already bananas, the idea that I could be. Potentially, thank you all so very much for putting me on your nominating ballots. Uh, and... Yeah, oh my god, I can't believe it. Hugo, I mean, I, like, I've been tweeting about Nominate the Show for mm -hmm. for a while, so got yeah, that don't self covered already. Yep, yeah, yeah. don't self-reject. Like, mm -hmm. you 100%, you if nobody knows you are eligible, nobody's going to vote for you. Exactly, <clears throat> yeah. I've had a story come out since the last time oh, we Oh, fantastic. Spoke. Yeah. What's I, the story? I think I mentioned it last time we were talking that I would have a story out with Uncanny Yes. At some point in 2020, and it turned out that that point was soon. <laughs> uh, so it came out in the February, January, February issue. Um, it's called "And All the Trees of the Forest Shall Clap Their Hands." It's also a portal fantasy, nice um, through Into a kind it. of anti-colonialist lens. So yeah, that can be found at Uncanny. Nice, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes yeah. as well. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Cool. Should I do the outro? Yeah. All right. I'm going to do my best uh, <clears throat> NPR voice. <laughs> hey, it's Hillary from the future. A couple of quick corrections I want to make. First, I would be remiss not to mention that, in fact, I've had four IRL friends on the first season of the show, the fourth friend being our August guest, Tyler Hayes. Second, I misremembered our schedule, and Fran Wilde is actually scheduled to be our July guest. Anyway, I hope you'll join us again in two weeks on May the 1st for another Shelter in Place episode, where I'll be joined live in studio by my spouse to revisit the original concept for the show. Doing these Shelter in Place episodes has been a lot of fun for me, and I hope you're enjoying them too. Our next regular episode will be releasing on May 15th, when my guest will be Annalie Flowerhorn. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and Hillary tweets at HBBizniax. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>